Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. I always find it particularly inspiring when an author spotlights important life issues, not only for the characters in their story, but for society at large. In his brand new novel, If Not Us, award-winning author Mark Smith has done just that. Through the eyes of a small-town young man who has experienced heart-wrenching loss, Mark has crafted a beautiful and compelling coming-of-age David versus Goliath story, which will inspire and engage young and old readers alike. A novel which is both timely and highly topical. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Mark to the podcast today. Hi, Mark. Hi, Claudine. Congratulations on this wonderful book. I mean, it certainly does bring new meaning to the power of literature. It's a kind of call to arms on climate change for Australian youth, isn't it? It is. And that was obviously my primary focus for for writing the book. The central theme being climate change, it's just not something that is often dealt with in a contemporary context, especially in young adults tends to lean towards dystopian and I've been guilty of that myself as well. So I was determined to, given the time that we're in at the moment, I was determined to try to write something that was inspiring and that was empowering through the creation of these characters in this little coastal town called Shelbourne. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Obviously, as you've just said, climate change is the focus of this book, and it's also an issue of global importance. But I wondered if there was a particular event or local issue that made you decide to write Hess's story. Yes, there was. In fact, there were there were two or three. Um, the first one was that I lived down in Anglesey on the west coast of Victoria, and we did have a quite a big campaign down here that I was a part of. And I have to be a little bit careful because this is this is a fictional story, which is which draws on my experience as being part of that campaign. So all characters are fictional, the the name of the company is fictional, but at the same time, it was a lived experience. Hmm. And that lived experience gave me lots of insights into the way in which campaigns like this work. I've been an environmental campaigner for 30, 40 years probably in a number of different different areas. This was a, a small local campaign which, as happens in the book, actually attracts in, attracted international interest because you're dealing with a multinational company and they are similar to the, the company in, in, if not us, they were going through a transition. So there was that side of it. I had that, I had that insight into a small-town campaign. I also, prior to the pandemic, we had those incredible school strike for climate rallies through our cities and uh, I went along to one in Geelong, and this would have been in 2019. And it was, for Geelong, it was massive, you know, it was huge and it was vibrant, it was alive. And as I was walking there, I could see these kids streaming out of schools and they're all in their uniforms and they're carrying signs and and I just got caught up in the stream of this and and it was just, it was loud, it was raucous and and there's such a passion there. So in actual fact, I went home that afternoon and I started writing Hess's story. I started writing wow. It's Not Us. It was that, it was that feeling that, that I had to clue into, I had to key into this in some way um, and bring it to life in a, in a fictional story. 
Absolutely amazing. Okay, so before we talk more about this wonderful story, for those listeners out there who haven't yet discovered this book, can you tell me a bit more about Hess and his journey? Sure. Hess is a 17-year-old surfer surfer dude, basically. Um, He's obsessed with surfing. Uh, He's unfortunately lost his father to the surf, to the ocean, seven years. So he's 10 years old when his father was taken from him, surfing this big wave break called Razors, where he simply disappeared one day when he was surfing on his own. So um, Hess has taken a long time to process that grief, and he's still, he was a young boy, really, when his father died. But he still is a, is a, as I said, he's a surfer dude, but he's very heavily influenced by a young woman who arrives in town, a Dutch exchange student, her name is Fenner. And Fenner brings this real European sensibility with her around issues around environment, but also personal issues and a lot of what, what I call Dutch directness, just in the way that she communicates. She, she was so much fun to write that character. I really enjoyed it. So Hess, at, with, the, with the support of, of Fenner, gets involved in this campaign against the coal mine and power station. Reluctantly, I'd have to say, he gets yeah. involved. And he, he turns out to be this really important cog in the way that this campaign comes together, um, almost without realising it himself. And he, he finds his voice, which is the most critical thing. I mentioned in my introduction that the release of If Not Us is timely since Australia has recently been in global headlines regarding the upcoming COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. And though I understand our Prime Minister is now set to attend, do you think his reluctance to do so is reflective of the level of importance our government attributes to the issue of climate change? Yes, I do. And I I reflect back on that rally that I went to, and I know that this government um, has said just recently, and Conservative members of this government have said that anyone who's talking about climate change with young people is scaring them. And that the way in which they thought was best to deal with that was to send more chaplains into schools as part of their chaplaincy program. And I was there and I was watching that and I've since engaged with a lot of these young campaigners. And I can tell the government they're not scared, they're angry. Angry at what they see as this inaction, which is going to so greatly affect the lives that they are going to be able to lead. Unfortunately, the issue has become, it's, it's unlike other countries, it's not a bipartisan issue. It's been used to, as a political wedge between um, conservative and, pro- and progressive parties. And that's been to the detriment of this country for 20 years. And now we are, you know, we've got, what, two weeks to go before Glasgow and we are still trying to cobble together a plan. So, yes, I think, I think you're, what you've said is, is entirely correct. It does show Um, the way in which they've approached this issue in a wholly inadequate way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Mark, I'm not sure if we said earlier in the recording, but you're a secondary teacher and I understand, as you've said, climate change is an issue that you speak with young people about. What do your students say to you? It's a combination of so many different things, but I think that they are much more aware than they are given credit for, but they also deeply, I think they deeply feel that they they don't have a voice and it hasn't been until there's been something like this campaign, you know, Youth Strike for Climate, um, that some of them have felt as though, well, hang on, we can actually have some impact here. The problem is, of course, and, 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 you know, one of the characters in the book says this, you know, your problem is that you don't vote and you don't spend enough money. 
you know, and therefore you don't have that, you know, degree of influence in a, in a society. I think, and I, I work principally with teenagers, so I think that is what teenagers feel. They feel as though they're disenfranchised, uh, not being listened to, and yet all of the decisions that are being made on their behalf are going to affect the lives that they get to lead as adults. As I said earlier, I think they are very, very angry about that. And that is why so many more of them are beginning to find their voice. I think what they needed as much as anything else was some sort of structure, some sort of platform that was there for them. And the Youth Strike for Climate has actually provided them that platform and more and more are climbing on board. So if not us has a definite Erin Brockovich vibe, I might say, (laughs) um, and it has echoes of the work of young Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg. I'm not sure if I said that right. Was the character of Hess inspired by Greta? Certainly the, that idea of one person being able to make a difference, yes. And he was aware, he is aware of who Greta is. Uh, and they actually, you know, they actually had been making fun of a girl at the school who's part of a, you know, the student environment council or something like that. And, um, and they, her nickname is Greta. So they're all aware of who Greta is. But as for him being inspired by her, I think that happens as he goes along and through the influence of Fenner, the Dutch exchange student, he does become more inspired and that's part of the reason why he finds his voice. I mean, Greta was one girl with her one sign sitting outside the Swedish parliament on Fridays, you know, yeah. and now she is the centre of a worldwide movement. So if that doesn't inspire, it inspires me as an adult, I'm sure it inspires young people as well. Indeed, I'm sure. Hess was a fascinating character in many ways, and I I loved his transformation from a fairly, what you would say, happy-go-lucky surfer boy to a young man who, as you say, began to understand his place in the world and the power of his own voice. Do you think on the whole that school kids are more politicised now than in the past? I think that they are. It's a bit of a paradox because um, they are probably, they have the access, the most access to information of any generation that's ever walk the planet Um, and yet they don't always access it in the way that we'd like them to put it that way Um, there's so much out there is so much there to divert them from you know those from those important issues that but as as Hess finds out the information is there if they want to go looking if they're motivated enough to go looking and he initially does that as part of a school assignment you know and that's how he takes his first little um, he tiptoes into the issue but it's enough to, for him to see that not enough is being done and that's where his, his anger begins. Um, he still lacks an enormous amount of confidence mm. and um, I think this is something that, that a lot of young people feel is that issues like this are, you know, in inverted commas, adult issues mm. um, and so our voices won't be heard. And I think that more and more now they are realising that well, maybe they actually can, and that's something we talked about Greta. I think that's something Greta has allowed them to see. And, you know, that fantastic thing too that we follow Greta for, what, three or four years now, she's 18, she's able to vote. Yeah. You know, so these are, and that's what these young people are seeing. They're just hoping it's not too late by the time they get to vote. Yeah, absolutely. What I found particularly fascinating in this book also, Mark, was the rhetoric big mining companies often use to justify their polluting activities and the way in which they infiltrate themselves into communities and the realistic way that you incorporated this into the narrative, you know, how difficult it is to change entrenched attitudes. And I know that you said you were involved in a campaign and, you you know, you obviously talk a lot about these issues, but I wondered if you did any additional research to inform this part of the narrative. 
Yes, I did. And it's been something that's been, uh, it was highlighted for me by the campaign that we had here. But mm. um, we also we also travelled around. We travelled up to the Latrobe Valley in Victoria to talk to environment groups up there. We had contact all around the country with, with environmental groups who were fighting major corporations. And major corporations, you know, they're, they're clever. They're smart because it's good business to ingratiate themselves to communities. It's what we call social licence. It sounds like a fairly vague term, but it's what allows a community to accept that that business operating in their community. And if they lose their social licence, they lose the support of the community, then they really struggle. And that social licence comes from providing putting money into the community, putting money, you know, having their signs up everywhere, supporting the Surf Lifesaving Club, the golf club, the, the footy club, the new jumpers, the you know. And that's very hard to counteract because you have all of these organisations who for a long period of time, when I say community organisations, who become dependent on the funds that come from the, the corporation that's operating in their town. So if you stand up in that town and you say, well, hang on, we want to, we want to close this corporation down, they're not... They're not thinking about the effects of that, of what the mining might be on the town or the health of the town. What they're thinking about is where are we going to get our money from now, you know? Companies, they foster that dependence. They want that dependence because that gives them the social licence. It's almost insidious in a way. <laughs> it is. It is, in, it is insidious and it's very, very hard to offer an alternative to that. But it's something that's been, it's, you know, um, successes are few and far between, but when they come, and we were successful in, in real life in my town here, and the town hasn't fallen over. The town still stands, and all of those organisations have found funding elsewhere. It's a bit of a furphy, that, and it's, it's something that the press plays into as well. You know, if, And it's fair enough, if 40 or 50 jobs are going to be lost out of a community, then they need to be replaced with something else. No campaign that I've ever been a part of has just said, oh, you know, stuff the workers, let them find the job themselves. There's always been, well, it has to be just transition. And that's what's, you know, that's what's argued for in If Not Us as well. Yeah. Mark, not only did you explore activism in the context of climate change in this novel, but you also explored teenage mental health issues and the stigma surrounding it. So I wanted to ask you to tell me about Fenna, um, the exchange student from Netherlands, and why this, why her struggle with mental health was was important to this story. Yeah, the first thing I do when I'm trying, when I'm building a character is I want to deepen that character as much as I can. So for Hess, um, that was his backstory with his father, single mother, etc. So I very much like the idea of this fish out of water story. So here's Fenner who actually ends up in this town accidentally. She wasn't supposed to come here. She's supposed to be with a family at another major town but she finds herself here and she hides she suffers from anxiety she's hidden that or not so much hidden it but she's managed it really well leading up to her time coming to Australia but as anyone who has suffered from from any mental health issue knows that can be triggered in a number in any number of different ways and for her part of the triggering was her coming to this new place and having to find a feet and not having a medication sorted and that's how why I did it I wanted to normalize that anxiety that she that she suffers from there's no I would never write a book about you know it's about anxiety but I I do like the idea of normalizing that behavior through having a character who who shows what it's like to live with anxiety and not just that but what that means in terms of Hess trying to figure her out because that's what 
kids often find themselves in that position as well. They might not suffer from something like that themselves or they might not have it themselves, but they have friends who do. And how do I interact with that friend and how do I support that friend and how do I come to understand the way that they live their life and, and bring it into mine, you know? So it's, it, it added another layer to that boy-girl um, relationship and just the idea that it takes Hess a while to understand what some of her triggers are and how she's doing today and, and to understand that today is a completely different day from yesterday. Yeah. Um, so I, I really, I was, and I actually had a colleague who has suffered from, from anxiety and I had beta readers read this for me as well and gave me fantastic insights into, into living with anxiety. But I had a friend who's lived with anxiety for a long time and she said, it, she really liked that normalising of it and not stigmatising. If that works, if that works for readers, I, that would be one of the, you know, that would won't be a success story for me. Now, speaking about boy-girl relationships, uh, consent in the context of yeah. sexual relations between your characters is something you've also touched on in this story, highly topical, of course, hmm. following some fairly high-profile media attention surrounding this issue last year. Is this something that you see more discussion needed around in the classroom? Yes, I do. And... It comes from it comes from my experience and from my partner's experience as well because my partner works in um, adolescent sexual health. So I'm, I, you know, and I drew really heavily on her experience as well. Yes, it is, and it's difficult though when we raise those issues in a in a fictional context like this because it's a very fine line between virtue signalling and having your characters behave in a way that that you know, an adult would want them to behave yeah. as opposed to the way they might actually behave in reality. And so that's a real, it's a really fine line there. And the influence of Imogen, who is, you know, Hess's single mum, the influence of, of her beliefs on him is really noticeable. She's been badgering, you know, since he was, <laughs> since he didn't even know what they meant, you know, the two Cs, you know, condoms and consent, condoms and consent. Yes. So, and when that, when the opportunity arises with Fenner to explore those issues, it's a complex writing task and it's a matter of two, where, where, you, where you fit the consent in, you know, and I, I, we had some really interesting discussions, uh, myself and my, and my editor, about what would realistically happen here and what would we like to happen. And that's what I mean by that fine line. Yeah, and I thought you did that so very well, like from a parent's perspective. You know, obviously we all understand that our children are going to grapple with these issues, possibly much earlier than we yeah. <laughs> expect them yeah. to. But I thought that that was dealt with so well and so very sensitively. I think also that this idea that the, 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 the girl Fenner was actually leading that, that conversation, yeah. I thought that was really important too. Yes, indeed. I agree. So, Mark, have any of your students read this book? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Uh, it's only been out for a couple of weeks. So it is definitely written to hopefully find a spot on curriculum in schools because mm. I think it's important that it's yeah. there. If I was to pitch it at a level, I would I'd think we'd be looking at kind of year eight, year nine, 15, 16 years old. So similar age to the protagonist and to Fenner. So it's what I've tried to do in my trilogy as well, which came before mm. If Not Us, and that was give them a page turner, but a page turner with enough issues and themes and discussion points for them to get engaged on that level as well. Mm. And that's why we, we hope that it will fit well into curriculum. I'm sure it will. 
Mark, you live on Victoria's Surf Coast where this novel is set and I, I believe it forms an essential element of Hess's story. The ocean is very much part of Hess's psyche but also something he has a healthy respect for, isn't it? It is. I'm a surfer as well myself, so which you might think, well, that's, that's a huge advantage in, in writing about a surfer boy, and it is, except that it is, and again, this was a lot of discussion between myself and my editor because there's a lot of surfing that takes place and surfing terminology which enters yeah. the novel. So that has got to work equally for someone reading the book who is familiar with that terminology mm. and someone who knows nothing about surfing. And so having Fenner as a bit of a catalyst there was a good way to go because she's never surfed before. Finn actually gives her a couple of surfing lessons um, so and he's able to try to relate from his perspective something that he knows so intuitively to someone who has absolutely no experience of it. Writing those surfing scenes is, again, it's, it's, walking, a, it's walking a tightrope because I don't want to lose my readers who, is, who are unfamiliar with it, but I also have to maintain authenticity in the writing. And part of that, that jargon is often part of the authenticity. Um, so you've got to use it, you've got to sprinkle it through without overdoing it, I think is the way to go. Yeah, but I think the end result was that we understood that was Hess's lived experience. That was part of him, so deeply part of him, that he knew surfboards and he knew about the wetsuits and he knew where the rips were. So it really made us understand how much a part of him the ocean was. Yeah, and look, I, I hope that it's a part of all the writing that I do where the environment that those characters are interacting with is almost a character in itself. Yeah. Um, and when you think about it, I'm, I'm huge on, as a writer, in the process of writing, I'm huge on setting. Setting is really important to me and often I will begin with setting and I think if I find the setting, I'll find the character. And it, it allows, the other beauty of, of having that, that setting really well rendered is that it explains so much about the character, their interaction with that, with that environment. And that's what I was trying to work with with Hess was his even that, you know, he can wake up in the middle of the night and he can sense whether it's gone offshore or not, which way the wind is blowing by whether this, you know, the, the, uh, the passion fruit vine is rubbing against the spout or not. Or, and that is true. Like, like surfers, it's almost like this innate thing where you wake up in the middle of the night, you listen and think, oh, it's gone onshore, you know. And to get that across in a character, I hope that that's, I hope that that's worked effectively. Now, Mark, this is your fourth novel. As you said before, your winter trilogy um, that you came before If Not Us, and it's a highly acclaimed trilogy. The first in that series is widely taught in secondary schools. So on that basis, I wondered if you had any writing tips for the many writers who listen to this podcast. Kind of depends on what stage the writer is at. And I think I've made it pretty clear. I, I write very much about what I know. I think that's a good place for writers to start. When I run writing workshops in schools at any level, I, I call it keeping the story close to home. So it is, it doesn't mean that you can't write dystopian or fantasy or whatever, but there's, there needs to be an, an element of yourself and an element of your story and your experience, which, which comes into that writing. That to me is number one. I think a lot of young writers, you know, my second tip would be, don't let the words get in the way of the story. Just tell the story. Don't worry about sounding literary or, and that's emerging writers as well. It's very obvious. I, I, you know, I've done quite a bit of judging of short story competitions and 
one of the things that gives away a writer is often when they you can clearly see that they are writing to impress. Mm-hmm. They're not writing to tell the story. They're writing to show how good a writer they are. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you lose, as soon as you lose touch with the story, that's what keeps the reader turning the page. Not the beautiful description of the ornate doorknob. It is. It's what it's what's going to move the story along. Uh, and that's I think that's a key to writing a good story, whether it be short story or novel form. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you so much for that. So, Mark, are you working on anything else at the moment? Writers are always working on something else, aren't we? We can't afford to rest, you know. I, I always thought when I was, before I was published, that, you know, the, the day you got your book published, you'd just be able to put your feet up and, and, and relax for a while, but, but it's, it's not so. You've got to keep moving. I am working on something else at the moment, which is largely based on my teaching experience, as, um, a lot of it as an outdoor educator. And it's a um, dual narrative, partly set in the school and partly set where a tragedy has happened uh, with one of the students. So it seems to be coming along okay, but we're, who knows with first drafts. I'm 50,000 words into it, so I'm on my way. Indeed. Well, fantastic. And good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> if listeners wanted to connect with you and learn more about your books, how could they do that? Yeah, I'm on, um, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, you can find me there. I was on Facebook until I had a huge hacking episode and oh. it, just, it just wasn't working for me and I had to close it down and, and run for my life basically. Um, but yeah, definitely on Instagram and on Twitter. And part of that getting off Facebook now is setting up a website. So that's not too far away. that's being built at the moment. Fantastic. Mark, I was thoroughly captivated by this eye-opening novel. I hope that it inspires Australians to use their voices to stand up for change. I wish you every success with it. And thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thanks very much for having me, Claudine. It's been a blast. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.